Hey there, Ruby Jones here, the host of 7am. Welcome to The Weekend Read, a podcast where contributors to Schwartz Media's magazine, The Monthly, read their long-form essays. Today on the show, Richard Dennis, the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, will be reading his cover story from the latest edition. It's called The Needle and the Damage Done, and in it he argues that the federal government's handling of the pandemic has been the worst public policy failure in Australian history. To hear more Weekend Reads, you can subscribe to The Weekend Read in Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Richard, hi, how are you? I'm great, how are you? Excellent, thank you. Um, I very much enjoyed reading your piece. Oh, thanks. It was fun to write. Bit of an octopus, but I hope I wrestled it there in the end. Mm -hmm. And it's about the failures of the vaccination rollout. Can you tell me about why you chose this to write about? Uh, Because obviously, you know, all we've done is talk about COVID in Australia for nearly two years, but there's been so much day-to-day conversation. It's very hard to remember what happened and who said what and who was responsible for what. So, yeah, rather than just talk about the case numbers and the vaccination rates, I thought we needed to go back and figure out how did we get to where we are and perhaps more importantly, where were we supposed to be by now? Mm. And do you feel like after spending all this time with it that you did find some answers to those questions? <laughs> I, I did, but I guess the main thing I found was that uh, our Prime Minister in particular just kept changing the goalposts. And the reason that perhaps we've forgotten so much or been so confused by what the plan, the target, the roadmap was, was that it just kept changing all the time. And it's not until you literally read everything he wrote and then spell it out in chronological order and I assure the readers that's not what they have to do, that's what I had to do. Uh, It really is remarkable, the twists and turns in in his story about what he was aiming to do. we, We started the year with him saying he was in no rush for a rollout, that he wanted safety over speed. And then, of course, by the end of the year, it was full steam ahead and everyone else's fault that there'd been delay. Mm. And Richard, where are you recording from today? Uh, In Canberra today on Ngunnawal Country. Um, Well, I'm very much looking forward to hearing you read the piece. Scott Morrison's New Year's message to Australians couldn't have been clearer. The front page of the Sydney Morning Herald cried, Vaccine can wait, says PM. Lest there be any doubt about his priorities at the time, the story opened with the calming message that Prime Minister Scott Morrison has warned it would be dangerous to rush a coronavirus vaccination rollout, even if it could lead to restrictions and border closures easing sooner. No, you didn't read that wrong. In January this year, the second year of the pandemic, the Prime Minister was urging us to hasten slowly when it came to vaccination. Two months later, he first uttered the infamous phrase that the vaccine rollout is not a race, a line he repeated three times that month. But by July, he hadn't just changed his mind. He wanted us to change our memories as well. When we made those remarks, he claimed, we were talking about the regulation of the vaccines. I'm not sure if people are aware of that. But he wasn't. Both the Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccines had been approved by February, 
well before he took his not-a-race line for a few laps around the press gallery. Yet again, Morrison was simply making stuff up to cover his change of course. It was neither the first nor the last time during the pandemic. On January 7, he held a press conference at which he humbly informed Australians, we don't want to make promises that we can't keep. We will tell you timetables when we have confidence in those timetables. And we will continue to update those timetables as more information is known and improvements continue to be made. We know what we know, and we will base our information and our timetables on that rather than speculating. The timetable should have been clear. By then, Morrison and his ministers had already made half a dozen announcements about their vaccine acquisitions, boasting of tens of millions of doses. Three weeks later, Health Minister Greg Hunt delivered the timetable the Prime Minister had promised. Our goal is very clear, and our advice is very clear, that we aim to have the country vaccinated before the end of October. That statement might seem very clear, and it was subsequently confirmed by the Secretary of the Department of Health on March 10 and by Morrison on March 11. But when it quickly became obvious the vaccine rollout was well behind such a schedule, the Prime Minister tried to have us believe that, you guessed it, it was us who'd misunderstood him again. According to Morrison's timetable, by early April, four million jabs should have been in the arms of Australians. But as their own data shows, in reality, it was less than one million. Just three months into the government's rollout, it was an incredible 75% below its own target. But on April 12, rather than express regret for his failures and commit to lift his game, Morrison told the nation, One of the things about COVID is it writes its own rules. So rather than set targets that can be knocked about by every to and fro of international supply chains and other disruptions that can occur, we're just getting on with it. Which simply wasn't true. The government had set targets and Morrison himself had stated, we can have confidence in those timetables. But as the paltry number of vaccinations showed, he clearly wasn't getting on with anything except changing the goalposts. And of course, come September, the Prime Minister was again obsessed with his vaccination targets and rounded on any state leader who suggested that the circumstances of their state should take precedence over the targets that he'd already shifted. Together, the Prime Minister, his Health Minister and the Secretary of the Department of Health have overseen the most expensive public policy mistakes in Australian history. But to hear Scott Morrison speak is to hear a man seeking praise for his performance. As Anthony Albanese has said often, Morrison failed in his two critical jobs, quarantine and vaccines. While the final tally cannot yet be known, the cost of these failures already runs to the tens of billions of dollars, with many lives lost and many more almost certain to follow. Let's start with quarantine. From the moment, early on the morning of March 19, 2020, that the Ruby Princess unloaded hundreds of COVID-positive passengers onto the streets of Sydney, many of whom rushed straight to the airport, the Morrison government has been denying it had responsibility for biosecurity and quarantine. While the subsequent inquiry into the debacle found that both the New South Wales and federal governments had failed in their obligations, it was telling that Morrison's first reaction was to shift both responsibility and blame onto the states. Morrison seems to believe that the less he commits to, the less he can be held responsible for. 
This in part might explain his refusal to build dedicated quarantine facilities rather than rely on poorly ventilated hotels as Australia's first line of defence. He said repeatedly that hotel quarantine system was 99.99% effective and that nothing was perfect, but again, neither claim was correct. Between April 20 and June 21, there were 21 breaches of hotel quarantine, which means our system was only 99.5% effective. No doubt Morrison would claim those numbers are quite similar, but think of it this way. If a system was 99.99% effective, then one in every 10,000 people entering the country would breach quarantine. But if it was 99.5%, it would be 50 people in every 10,000 arrivals. That's a big difference in an environment of exponential viral spread when whole cities are being shut down for a single breach of quarantine. And if a commercial airline was only 99.99% safe, there'd be 3,900 air disasters each year, and many more deaths as a result. But the most important statistic is also the simplest to interpret. There were zero breakouts of COVID-19 from Howard Springs in the Northern Territory, repurposed by the federal government as the nation's only COVID quarantine facility. None. If only there'd been more such facilities. Australians do expect some systems to be 100% effective, and they're right to demand their representatives pursue such high standards. Dedicated quarantine facilities near the nation's major airports would have saved Australia from most recent lockdowns in Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra. Yet from the moment COVID first hit our shores, the Prime Minister has refused to spend a few hundred million dollars, less than the cost of his government's car park rorts program, to build any. In contrast, Morrison recently announced his willingness to spend whatever it takes to purchase eight new nuclear-powered submarines. When the Prime Minister announced the government's vaccine rollout plan in January, he made clear it would not just be fast, but targeted, getting earliest to people at the highest risk of catching the virus and passing it on. Quote, There will be five phases of priority populations as we work through over the course of this year to administer the vaccine, both the Pfizer vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine. Today we are going to talk about the process of those first two phases that will provide the most necessary ring of containment and protection for the Australian population. Those populations in the first phase are quarantine and border workers, frontline health officials, as well as those working in aged care and disability care and those in aged care and disability care residents. End quote. By June 15, 19 million vaccination doses should have been in the arms of Australians, especially the most vulnerable, according to the timetable Morrison set. None of that happened. Instead, on that June day, a privately contracted limousine driver who was transporting international flight crews, tested positive for New South Wales' first known case of the Delta variant of COVID-19. The driver was unvaccinated and not required to wear a mask. Had the federal government taken responsibility for building dedicated quarantine centres, of course, there would be no need for private limo drivers to shuttle those with the greatest risk of bringing COVID into Australia back and forth between privately operated hotels. But if Morrison built such facilities and there were a breach, it would be on his shoulders. So why would he take a risk when it could be pushed onto others? 
On vaccination, the Morrison government had 12 months to plan who would receive doses first. It had 12 months to communicate with the public about the benefits and the risks of vaccination, including those from non-English-speaking backgrounds. It had time to get ahead of the inevitable tide of anti-vax information. It had time to vaccinate those most at risk of spreading infection. It even had time to consult with businesses and unions to draft new laws or clarify the operation of existing ones to provide employers and employees with clear guidance on when compulsory vaccination might be permitted and required and when it would not. But instead of doing the hard work of developing and implementing good policy, the Prime Minister took easy shots at state leaders. One of the federal government's biggest mistakes was also one of the easiest to avoid. In declining Pfizer's offer in June 2020 to be at the head of the queue for its vaccine, the government made a huge bet on AstraZeneca. But having done so, Morrison lost the courage of his own convictions when, in April 21, he held a panicked evening press conference to warn people about new advice from the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation on the side effect risks of AstraZeneca. While he blamed Atagi, yet again the fault lay with him rather than with his scapegoat. Morrison has repeatedly claimed that Atagi's advice did not consider the risk of further outbreaks when it recommended that Pfizer be preferred for the young. But, as is so often the case, the written record contradicts the Prime Minister. In cautioning people against AstraZeneca, Morrison exacerbated vaccine hesitancy and that allowed him to focus attention on the lack of demand for vaccines rather than his failure to secure sufficient supply. By mid-June, the vaccine rollout was an astonishing 13 million doses behind Morrison's self-imposed schedule, with fewer than 1 million fully vaccinated people. As a result, key workers from drivers shuttling air crews to those driving ambulances and trucks through to aged and disability sector workers, as well as disabled people themselves, were all at significantly greater risk of dying. Likewise, the entire economy was more prone to requiring lockdowns imposed by state governments as a result. The cost in lives and dollars of Morrison's stroll out are simply staggering, and to date the Prime Minister seems to have avoided even being asked how responsible he feels for that state of affairs. Of course, not everyone was missing out on vaccinations. A source close to a Qantas staff member told me in May this year the airline was rolling out its own privately funded and privately organised Pfizer vaccination program for all of its staff and everyone they lived with of adult age. In Sydney, Qantas commandeered a corner of the cavernous international terminal and turned it into a bustling vaccination hub that for months distributed the seemingly scarce Pfizer to staff and housemates alike. How did Chief Executive Alan Joyce secure what the Prime Minister struggled to find? Why weren't higher risk groups in the community vaccinated before the families of Qantas office staff? And how did the fact that more than 20,000 people jumped the queue not break into the national news? Perhaps we'll never know. But imagine if limo drivers and interstate truck drivers had been vaccinated ahead of accountants and marketing executives at an airline that was barely flying. Qantas weren't alone in getting ahead. It cost more than $50,000 per year to send a kid to St Joseph's College in Sydney's affluent North Shore, and parents who spend that kind of money expect their offspring to get more than a few head starts in life. They weren't disappointed this year when the New South Wales Health Department agreed to provide 163 boarders from Joey's, as the old boys call it, 
with Pfizer, despite the fact it was not available for most under-40s at the time. Thanks to documents obtained under freedom of information laws, we know that an unnamed New South Wales Health Department official secured Pfizer doses for all of the school's borders that were locked down, with sport fields and a swimming pool to offer respite. After the scandal came to light, the helpful official explained to their boss, Knowing the Joey's situation well, I approached Sydney Local Health District Chief Executive Theresa Anderson in early May on my own initiative to ask whether it would be possible to vaccinate the senior students at St Joseph's College. Anything's possible, especially when you're wealthy and well-connected. Joey's weren't alone in knowing who and how to ask. It was reported that at least one other exclusive boarding school managed to get their students vaccinated with Pfizer, and that the King's School, where fees reach $65,000 a year and the grounds are more than twice the size of Sydney University's main campus, were seeking the same head start for their students at the time the St Joseph scandal hit the headlines. Under pressure to explain how it was that some of the most privileged kids in the country were vaccinated ahead of the genuinely vulnerable members of the community, and with the particular vaccine that was the hardest to come by, the New South Wales Health Department blamed the error on its enthusiasm to protect the Indigenous community. No kidding. Even though the paper trail makes clear that the plan was always to immunise all of the borders, the fact that a small percentage of those borders was Indigenous, and hence prioritised for vaccination, was used to explain the error. The state's Indigenous communities did not similarly benefit from the proactive enthusiasm of the unnamed official who was so keen to help the Joey's boys. Not only are Indigenous vaccination rates lower in New South Wales than in the broader community, a pattern that's common across the country, but efforts by Indigenous communities to prepare themselves for the pandemic have at times been actively stymied by the bureaucracy that was so supportive to those least in need. Wilcannia, northwest New South Wales, is one of the most disadvantaged communities in the state. It has low incomes, high levels of unemployment, and a majority of Indigenous residents. But when community leaders ask the government authorities for tents to help protect those living in notoriously overcrowded housing from spreading the virus to their loved ones, they were denied on the basis that overcrowding in Wilcannia was a problem, quote, before the COVID-19 outbreak and will be here well after. 18 months into the pandemic, the head of the peak Indigenous health body in New South Wales told a parliamentary inquiry the government had yet to directly engage with vulnerable communities. We didn't have a sit-down with the health minister around this current outbreak, nor have we sat down with the chief health officer to work through the public health response, nor have we sat down with them about the reopening of New South Wales. Having failed spectacularly to meet his own timetables and targets, and having cautioned people about the small risks of rushing vaccination approvals, the Prime Minister is now pushing headlong towards a new target despite some qualifications from state premiers and chief ministers in the National Cabinet. The plan is to end lockdowns and open up the economy when the vaccination rate reaches 80% of the eligible population, those aged 16 and over, which is around only 64% of the total population. That will leave some 9.2 million Australians unvaccinated, 4.1 million of whom will be children. Moving on from blaming the state premiers for lockdowns, Morrison is now blaming those who aren't vaccinated for their hesitancy. While there are undoubtedly some hesitant people, and some who are anti-vax entirely, most of the eligible population yet to be vaccinated 
simply won't have had the opportunity, time or support to get their jab. In July this year, the New South Wales Health Minister, Brad Hazard, said supplies of COVID-19 vaccines were so low, people had been, quote, chasing jabs like characters from the Hunger Games films. In October, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews said his state had no choice but to, quote, ration Pfizer. COVID is thought to be 10 times more deadly than the flu and is far more easily transmitted. Despite assertions to the contrary, it poses a far greater risk to your life than crossing the street. It can kill the young and the fit, but is far more likely to kill older people and those with underlying conditions such as respiratory diseases and diabetes, as well as those with conditions such as Down syndrome. While anyone, including the vaccinated, can spread COVID-19, some people are far more likely to spread it due to the nature of their work or their living conditions. Our health officials and government know this, and it's why the Morrison government had a five-stage plan for the vaccine rollout. But because the plan failed, the most vulnerable groups, and many of those most likely to spread it, are less likely to be vaccinated than the general population, not more. When Australia does open up, the chances of the virus being spread by key workers and being caught by the most vulnerable are far higher than would have been the case had Morrison delivered on his promise to prioritise key groups for vaccination. Morrison still says his determination to commence opening up at 70% of the eligible population vaccinated and to end lockdown restrictions entirely at 80% is based on the medical advice provided to the government and the National Cabinet by the Doherty Institute. But no matter how closely you read the Doherty modelling, you won't find the part where it advises the government to do anything, and they definitely don't describe lifting restrictions on movement and mixing as safe. What the Doherty modelling does provide are forecasts of the likely number of cases, hospitalisations and deaths from COVID-19 under a range of different scenarios. It does not claim to have considered all the likely scenarios and does not claim to be able to predict how the virus will spread through high-risk communities. The modelling makes no forecasts about the different death toll that might be likely in different communities or for those with different underlying conditions. To be clear, the advice provided to the National Cabinet that's been used to justify the decision to lift restrictions at 80% vaccination contains no breakdown of likely deaths by gender, ethnicity, income or pre-existing health status. The only demographic breakdown it chose, or was asked to provide, is for age. Put simply, the modelling of which the Morrison government is so proud is blind to gender, race and class. The Delta variant of COVID-19 is so contagious that it spread through New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT, despite harsh lockdowns and rapidly rising vaccination rates. The minute those restrictions are eased, it will begin to spread faster still, especially through the communities of these 9 million unvaccinated Australians. Neither the Prime Minister nor any state leader has ever pretended that a lot of people won't die after we open up. The only consolation offered is that, if we're lucky, our hospitals will have the physical capacity to house all the sick and dying. While no one can predict who will die in the months ahead, all of our national leaders know which groups are most vulnerable, and all of them know that, with the exception of the elderly, those groups are less likely to be vaccinated than the public at large. Morrison, having abandoned his early caution about vaccines, is now willing for the most vulnerable groups to be exposed to very significant risks. Not all leaders have been so gung-ho. 
From the first day of Canberra's Delta outbreak, Chief Minister Andrew Barr made the point that he did not think it was safe for Canberra to open up when the Territory hit 80% vaccination. Instead, he was urging Canberrans and the Prime Minister to strive for more ambitious targets and, importantly, to ensure that vulnerable groups were vaccinated before the virus was freed to run rampant. The ACT is completely surrounded by New South Wales. They share countless border crossings, and a large number of people move back and forth between the ACT and New South Wales for work, healthcare and other services each day. From the minute the New South Wales government decided against locking down Sydney and placing a ring of steel around it to protect regional New South Wales, it was inevitable that Delta would find its way to Canberra. As is often the case with COVID, it's the choices that other people make that most affect your prospects. Barr said the ACT's position within New South Wales meant the Territory's actions in opening up were to some extent dictated by the more open lockdown policies of its encompassing neighbour. Quote, We need to get more of our people vaccinated to protect ourselves from the decisions of another government, Barr said. A decision that we don't agree with and which goes against the health advice of that government. New South Wales Health were pushing hard to open up at 80 to 85% of adult vaccination, said the Chief Minister. That sort of target seems to be based on much sounder advice and would be better for the economy overall, as the clear evidence is that the stronger the public health response, the stronger the economic performance is as well. But unfortunately, the New South Wales government feels no obligation to protect others. That is very clear. I don't think any other state matters in their decision-making, said the ACT's chief minister. So much for all of us being in this together. Vulnerable people in the ACT who were yet to be vaccinated were exposed to COVID before any nationally agreed targets, and according to the ACT chief minister, the protection of the vulnerable in Canberra was not a concern of political leaders in Sydney. If vaccines were life jackets and Scott Morrison the captain of a sinking ship, he would declare it was time to abandon ship before the vulnerable were all taken care of. People aged over 65 are far more likely to live in high-risk settings such as residential care homes, far more likely to die of COVID, and far more likely to vote Liberal. It made sense on so many levels that older people were amongst the first to be vaccinated. But while older people aren't the only ones who were at greater risk of dying from COVID, they were the only vulnerable group who were successfully targeted with early vaccination. We know from previous outbreaks, not just of COVID and not just in Australia, that diseases are more likely to spread in densely populated areas, amongst people who have no choice but to go out and work, and among those whose health is already impaired. We know who those people are, we know where they live, and had the Prime Minister delivered on his promise they would have been the first in the vaccine queue, not the last. On June 2 this year, Labor's Bill Shorten, a shadow minister for the NDIS, asked the Prime Minister in Parliament why, despite promising that all disability care residents would be vaccinated by Easter, only 355 of more than 22,000 living in disability accommodation had received both doses of their vaccine. Morrison's answer speaks volumes. What is important, we understand, is that the Health Minister has advised on numerous occasions a first dose is very important protection 
and I don't think it's helpful for Labor to be talking down first-dose protections in the middle of a vaccine program. I don't think it's responsible. We, on this side, will continue to focus on the job of rolling out what is the largest vaccine program in Australian history. We've gone through a week which has seen more than 700,000 Australians being vaccinated around the country, Scott Morrison said. Despite Morrison's assertion, what is important, quote-unquote, is that only 2% of the vulnerable people in disability accommodation had been fully vaccinated months after they were all supposed to have been. Rather than apologise for such a failure and promise urgent action to address it, the Prime Minister instead crowed about the fact that lots of less vulnerable people who weren't prioritised in his plan had been vaccinated instead. As Shorten points out, we know how many people are eligible for the NDIS, the Disability Support Pension, or are employed via the Disability Employment Service Scheme. We know how to contact each of them. And if the government wanted to know what percentage of them are vaccinated, it would. Likewise, if the government wanted to have vaccinated them first, it could have. Similarly, the government could have vaccinated the cohort of aged people on home care packages. Yet as late as August this year, with New South Wales' wave of infections rising rapidly, Health Department Secretary Brendan Murphy and Lieutenant General John Fruin, commander of the COVID-19 task force and hence in charge of the vaccine rollout, admitted to the Senate Select Committee on COVID that they hadn't even formulated a plan to vaccinate these hundreds of thousands of highly vulnerable people or the highly mobile workforce that cares for them. Fruin told the committee that there was no specific plan and, quote, no focused effort at the moment to ensure they were vaccinated. The same is true, as mentioned earlier, for Indigenous people. Again, if the government wanted to reach out to individuals who identified as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander through data such as provided by the census or wanted to provide specific outreach services to such communities, it could have, and the fact that it didn't speaks volumes about its priorities. At some point, undeclared, it's clear that the Morrison government simply gave up on trying to vaccinate everyone in the 1A and 1B categories of its own priority groups program which include frontline healthcare workers, aged care workers and residents, and Indigenous people. In the rush to get to 80% nationally, the plans to vaccinate the vulnerable first were left behind. But rather than take responsibility for that decision, the Prime Minister instead blames the victims of his shift in priority. When asked by a journalist in September whether we should set specific targets for Indigenous vaccination rates and wait until they were met before the nation opened up, because the rates in some Indigenous communities were as low as 7%, Scott Morrison took four minutes to answer. It's genuinely hard to tune into Morrison's press conferences. Listening to him respond to a question is like watching a large octopus slip through a small hole. There's so much colour and movement, and when it's finished, you can't be sure you know what just happened. And of course, this rhetorical technique is no accident. Some of his 359-word answer to the question of whether we needed separate targets for Indigenous vaccination included, And so that is another matter which the Department of Health and the Minister and I have been progressing, and Professor Murphy, and it's something we need to progress together with all the states and territories. And it already has been in so many respects. So yes, I agree with Pat Turner, convener of the Coalition of Indigenous Peak Bodies, that we need to get those vaccination levels in our Indigenous communities as high as possible, as high as possible, 
but at the same time, that does not disable us from the whole community being able to move forward under the national plan, and the national plan appreciates that. So that's a no. Greg Hunt went on to add, one of the things that we were reviewing this week, the progress, was the information provided that 99% of people living in remote Australia have had access to the vaccines. And so the real point, which the Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken Wyatt, has made and many others, such as Pat Turner, is that we need to boost confidence. That's a no from Greg as well. It's hard to do better than providing 99% quote, access to vaccines, end quote, except, of course, the question related to whether it was prudent to open up when only 7% of some communities were in fact vaccinated. Like his leader, the health minister completely ignored the substance of the question, while regaling the audience with statistical proof of his success in making vaccines available to Indigenous communities and subtly blaming the victims of his government's failure by talking about the lack of confidence some Indigenous people had in the vaccine. While full-time workers who take time off to get their vaccination get sick pay, in 21st century Australia, only two-thirds of the workforce have access to such a luxury. For those under 25, only 44% have full-time employment with sick pay and the four weeks leave their parents likely took for granted. The rise of casual and contract work, from convenience stores to universities, has had significant consequences for many of those who work in the occupations most likely to contract and transmit COVID. Both scheduling a jab at a time that won't cost an entire shift's worth of income and fearing the need to take time off if side effects kick in act as a significant disincentive for many to get vaccinated. Labor's proposal of a $300 payment to all who got vaccinated was attacked by Morrison and many in the media as an insult to Australians, when the real insult was ignoring the consequences of so many workers' lack of access to sick pay. According to the Australia Institute of Health and Welfare, people from the lowest socioeconomic group were four times more likely to die from COVID than those in the highest group. After controlling for the fact that older Australians are more likely to live in poverty and die from the virus, even on an age-adjusted basis, the poorest people in Australia were 2.6 times more likely to die from COVID than the wealthiest. In short, being poor is an underlying condition. And if Australia wanted to minimise death from COVID, we would have prioritised the vaccination of the poor, but instead we did the exact opposite. The real test of leaders is what they do, not what they say. If Indigenous people, people with disabilities, and those living in vulnerable circumstances such as prisons and refugee detention centres had been prioritised, then their rates of vaccination would be higher than the national average, not lower. The fact that so many vulnerable people missed out, while the staff of Qantas and the borders at Joey's got jabbed with Pfizer, wasn't due to the luck of the draw, was proof that the game was rigged. Having started the year telling Australians that he would rather have a good vaccine rollout than a fast one, having scared people away from the only readily available vaccine with his panicked evening press conference about AstraZeneca, and having criticised then New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian for not locking down her state hard enough, the Prime Minister now wants to define himself by his determination to get Australians vaccinated as quickly as possible and despite all those nasty state premiers who wanted lockdowns instead. 
He's right that Australians can't stay locked down forever and right that Australians are desperate to return to their jobs, see their extended families and maybe even have a holiday if they're among the lucky people who saved money during the crisis rather than the ones who lost their homes or raided their super to survive. But the lockdowns wouldn't have been necessary if he'd delivered the vaccine rollout he'd promised. If the Prime Minister had hit the targets he set for himself, we would have achieved 80% adult vaccination in late August and likely vaccinated every adult who wanted to be vaccinated by now. And if all border workers, including limousine drivers, had been vaccinated as a priority, as he'd promised, the recent Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra lockdowns would have likely avoided having gone for months. Former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull recently described the Morrison government's vaccination rollout as, quote, the biggest failure in public administration he can recall. It's hard to disagree. The refusal to build standalone quarantine stations, the refusal to secure more Pfizer when it was offered, the undermining of AstraZeneca, and the inability to roll out the vaccine either quickly or in a targeted manner have already cost Australia tens of billions of dollars, not to mention the physical and mental health costs, the lost opportunities, and the time never to be regained. Since Federation, the tyranny of distances dominated much of Australian life. But with COVID, it gave us a priceless head start. That was squandered by poor planning, poor implementation and poor communication. We're still in a race with COVID-19 and millions of Australians, disproportionately our most vulnerable, face the very real threat of catching a disease that's already hospitalised around 10,000 people. And as Christmas approaches, the nation is confused about vaccine passports, employers are confused about their obligations to staff and customers, and the state premiers are in open revolt with the Prime Minister over everything from health funding to international travel. When the pandemic began, we were told that clear communication was key to our success. But Scott Morrison has instead decided that our confusion is the key to his success. The only thing that's been clear about the Prime Minister's communication is that he will say anything to avoid responsibility for his failures. His words might win him votes, but they've already cost Australia dearly. The death toll will only rise from here. No doubt we will be encouraged to blame the rising toll on the underlying conditions of the virus as victims. But in reality, it's the underlying immorality and the incompetence of the Morrison government that is the culprit. You can read Richard Dennis's piece in the latest issue of The Monthly. 